Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Ware coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 19th of February, 2021. Today, I want to give you a little bit of a background lecture on membrane physiology. We're going to talk some about lipids and we're going to talk about membrane proteins as well. I want to give you this information so that the next series of lectures, which are going to tie back together to the aging and immune response, I won't have to um, explain some of the terminology. So this is very basic stuff. It's membrane physiology, membrane physiological biochemistry, to be more precise. So first of all, we can ask the question, what kinds of proteins do you find in membranes? And one of the um, aspects you can ask about the membrane uh, proteins are what are their functions? So a typical function for a membrane protein is to transport substances in some kind of event ontology across membranes. They can also act as receptors, and they can also, of course, membrane proteins as enzyme catalysts. One that I think about often is the sphingomyelinase. You also have peripheral proteins. Those are the ones that are bound by electrostatic interactions, and they can be removed easily when you're purifying them just by raising the ionic strength of a buffer during extraction. Integral proteins, of course, which are sometimes much more interesting, are bound very tightly to the interior of the membrane, and they can be removed only with treatment with, the, with detergents, sometimes with ultrasonification. Um, removal generally denatures these proteins. So you have to put them in a solvent system that will allow for them to maintain activity. Now, if they're a transporter, that activity is going to still require an intact vesicle. But if they're an enzyme, and there are a lot of, as I said, really important enzymes embedded in the membrane, then you have to concoct some kind of in vitro uh, buffer that they can maintain activity. So there was an enzyme that we used to purify from Escherichia coli. It was called acyl carrier protein acyl synthase or acyl ACP synthase. And what that would do is take a preformed fatty acid either in the form of an acyl-CoA or an acyl-chloride, and then add it to the phosphopantothene pr prosthetic group of ACP, so carrier protein. So you'd make a thioester of a fatty acid to this protein. I used to do that when I was a postdoc as a general uh, synthesis for making radioactive substrates for looking at enzymes that would function on acyl-ACPs of various chain length and degree of unsaturation of the fatty acid. So that enzyme, acylase B synthase, had to be put into a buffer because it was basically a uh, membrane protein uh, in, in E. coli, in the bacteria E. coli. And so what we put it in is real high concentration of lithium chloride, um, also with about, I think it used to be 20% uh, isopropanol. You could also uh, put in Tritonex 100, which is non-ionic detergent, and that would uh, further stabilize it. And you also had to add reducing agent like dithiothriotol or beta-mercaptoethanol. So if you kept the enzyme in that uh, buffering system and you kept it at four degrees in the refrigerator, that enzyme could last quite a while, a couple, three weeks just sitting in a buffer like that. So now most enzymes will not function that way. For example, the isopropanol often degrades enzymes, right? 
But, uh, and this is because it was a highly hydrophobic uh, protein. It functioned very well in that, in that uh, particular uh, um, alcohol solution. And isopropanol was the only one that would work. You couldn't use butanol and you couldn't use ethanol. Anyway, that's just an idea. When you're working with proteins, membrane proteins, there's a special care that has to be taken when you're characterizing them. So when I tell you all about membrane proteins, I want you to appreciate the fact that it takes quite a bit of um, chemistry, uh, a good knowledge of organic chemistry to be able to keep these proteins active if you're studying them, characterizing them in terms of their biological uh, function. So at any rate, that's a little biochemistry story. Now, proteins can be anchored to membranes, of course. So you can have n meristoyl and s palmitoyl anchoring motifs. Meristic acid, of course, is a C14 fatty acid and palmitate C16. Both of them have to be, uh, happen to be saturated fatty acids. So the s palmitoyl would be then found as a thioester linked to a cysteine residue, whereas the meristic acid is often found as an N-terminal uh, fatty acyl uh, modification. That's usually on a glycine residue, the N-terminal polypeptides. You can also, of course, get not just this fatty acid association, covalent modification. Um, you can also, of course, get glycosylation, and that's also very common in membrane proteins. You get oligosaccharides, polysaccharides. You can get lipopolysaccharides. There's a whole host of ornamentation of proteins um, that can have uh, multiple pleiotropic effects on the activity of the protein, its insertion into the membrane, its um, orientation distal and proximal to either the cytoplasm or the extracellular matrix, and therefore its ability to do contingent interaction with uh, other proteins or indeed with solutes or with activator or deactivator protein systems um, that may link up to its ability to transport important molecules in and out of the cell, such as nucleotides or even RNA. Right? So, <clears throat> and meristylated proteins um, tend to have their carboxy terminus. In fact, most of the protein is in the cytoplasm, but the carboxy terminus is at the outside, is more internal. And then the meristic acid is N-linked, so that means the amino terminus of the protein is going to have its close association to the uh, inner leaflet of the plasma membrane. Now, with S-palmitylylation, it has to, uh, where that protein is uh, aggregated and segregated between the membrane and either internal or external to that membrane, has to do with where the cysteine residue is on the polypeptide chain. So that, because that palmitylation will be where that cysteine residue on that sequence of amino acids in that uh, protein chain will then be closest to the protein, I think closest to the membrane, excuse me, the inner leaflet. Now, often palmitylated proteins can have a rather thorough intramembranous organization. And those are usually alpha helices, those protein fragments, uh, secondary structure are alpha helices. Um, and those proteins can be very insoluble. You can get sometimes a uh, protease that will clip off the cytoplasmic side of the protein, but then you have to use detergents 
or some maybe sonication or some other method to get the membrane bound component. And then usually a protein like that would have then an amino terminus that would be in the extracellular space, usually in uh, in the matrix there. And sometimes proteases function on that as well. So these proteins architecture can be quite complex and really beautiful actually. So <clears throat> when you look at, for example, the erythrocyte membrane skeleton, you're going to find multiple proteins embedded there in just a simple erythrocyte. You're going to have actin, tropomyosin. You're going to have anion channels, glycophorin, anchorin, spectrin. All these proteins uh, have been characterized, has been associated with just the membrane portion of the erythrocyte. And that was one of the first classical ones that was studied um, because it was abundant amount of erythrocytes available in the laboratory, and people were able to keep those proteins in relative um, stable states so they didn't fall apart once you remove them from membrane. Remember, once you remove them from their membrane state, a lot of these proteins will just denature. That's what I mean by falling apart. If they denature, it's kind of difficult to do anything with them, certainly in terms of functionality, but even with structural analysis that you might, of course, uh, imagine. So th this is like, uh, just how you work with membrane proteins. That's why many of the proteins that are soluble enzymes, uh, intracellular, those are the first ones that were purified to homogeneity and characterized in vitro. Eventually, then after sequence, uh, protein sequence was done with them, and uh, that was often used to make uh, probes, nucleic acid probes, to pull out messenger RNA and indeed um, using the same kind of probes to pull out uh, genomic clones of those genes and then sequencing those genes. It used to be the way it was done before PCR came along. So it was a very tedious process, right? Nowadays, you can do a, uh, you can do an analysis at the RNA level, find proteins that have certain sequence homology to proteins known to be embedded in the membrane without having to purify that protein from the membrane. But typically, if you want to study membrane proteins, you still have to uh, study them functionally anyways, while they are in the membrane uh, per se. And that means you have to have a way of uh, assaying them. And that can be difficult on its own level, but uh, this is standard procedure for people that study this sort of stuff. Right. So again, major proteins have the human erythrocyte. There's spectrins, there's anchorins, paladins, dementins, actins, tropomyosin, uh, and then several glycophorins. And their mass can range from over uh, uh, 260,000 Dalton all the way down to about 29,000 Dalton when you get down to the glycophorins. And the proteins themselves will aggregate and assemble in the membrane. Sometimes like with spectrin, you get uh, alpha-2, beta-2 tetramers. You can get some monomers, but the proteins can be get pretty large. Um, you can get trimers of the protein dimantin, uh, oligomers of actin, of course, um, usually monomers of tropomyosin, but tetramers of the protein glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase. You can find that in the erythrocyte membrane. Indeed, and we know what that is, an important enzyme in glycolysis. And with the glycophorins, you normally form dimers. And that means that the, the amount of protein that's in the membrane is going to be related to how they aggregate. And of course, into the number of the copies of the protein in the cell will then show you how much of that 
is necessary for, for functions like cell recognition, which is what glycophorin does, glucose transport for several integral proteins, which we've talked about in the past, uh, the glycolytic enzyme, as I said, and uh, the various other proteins have various functions, right? Like G protein couple receptors, and, you know, insulin receptor, things like that, right? So there's a whole host of functions that you can tease out. So glycophorin A, uh, the polypeptide, is a single membrane-spanning alpha helix. So typically, that secondary structure of proteins that's found in the membrane is an alpha helical structure. And some of those amino acids are going to be quite hydrophobic, and some of them won't be, but uh, they will be neutral other than that. So you'll get, oh, leucine and isoleucine and phenylalanine, but you'll also get glycine. Uh, the valine is found in the alpha helices very commonly. So uh, you're not going to find uh, really basic or really acidic amino acids uh, where those amino acids are part of the sequence that are part of the transmembrane domain, it's called. Um, but you'd sometimes find them because they can be occult, they can be hidden within even that highly, remember it's a highly hydrophobic region within the middle of the bilayer. So with, for example, going back to glycophorin A, you have this huge extracellular domain, um, and then you have this somewhat truncated intracellular domain. And remember, this whole protein can be modified with uh, various kinds of sugars like sialic acid. So it's a very complex membrane protein, and it's highly decorated with uh, glycosylation patterns. So glycophorin A is indeed just giving some detail about this one, uh, a major intrinsic membrane protein of that uh, cell called the erythrocyte. And terminal is glycosylated heavily. That's very common for when proteins have an extracellular domain. They're often typically very glycosylated, heavily glycosylated. Um, they appear to be important to have a, a function for how that protein actually carries out its business because it's required uh, for the high activity of some of these glycophorins. Could be involved in the translocation of other proteins to the plasma membrane. It's one of the functions of glycophorin. Magnesium uh, is one of the most important predominant intracellular divalent cations, and it's requisite to the regulation of a whole diverse array of cellular functions. The accumulating data on that is you uh, is you have to look at magnesium at the two plus state being functional as its own transporting system. So the magnesium is there, plus it has to be transported into and out of the cell in order to be associated with shielding some of that negative charge. That's what magnesium is doing here, like with magnesium ATP. And so, as it turns out, magnesium is necessary for cell signaling because these are again intrinsic membrane proteins, metabolism, both extracellularly and intracellularly, um, such physiological functions as growth and cell division or proliferation. But it's still not clear what uh, magnesium is doing and why some other divalent cation won't function. Um, of course, disregarding the Stokes radius of that particular ion, that particular element, that doesn't seem to be the major uh, factor there. Uh, glycophorin A is a receptor, um, reason I'm talking about it, just as in the size, so you get curious about it, for the ins uh, influenza virus. It's also a receptor for Plasmodium falciparum. 
uh, and it's called erythrocyte binding antigen 175 or EBA175. And it turns out that the binding of EBA175 uh, is dependent on a sialic residue, sialic acid residue, on one of the oxygen linked glycans of glycophorin. So this EBA from plasmodium has to find those sialic acid residues uh, that are on the glycophorin chain. And the other thing glycophorin is, is for another virus, it also seems to be the receptor for hep A, hepatitis A virus. So you see they have multiple functions in the cell, uh, yet uh, they are from one gene product, right? So if you look at glycophorin A, and there's another way of studying these uh, intrinsic membrane proteins, you can do hydropathy, hydrophobicity plots. And the way that you plot this on the x-axis, you have free energy of transfer to, for example, water. And the free energy is usually expressed as kilojoule per mole. And then on the uh, x-axis, if you could call it that, is describing the sequence of the protein um, or the fragment of the protein going from, say, the amino terminus to the next carboxy terminus. And so for glycophorin A, you've got a fair amount of amino acids going from, say, oh, 10 to about 60, reading in from the amino terminus, which have free, uh, have negative values for free energy transfer to aqueous, which means they're very water soluble amino acids, and it makes sense because they're in the cytoplasm. But then when you hit that membrane, transmembrane domain, you get uh, uh, very high positive values for free energy transfer to water, uh, upwards between, oh, say, 100 to almost 200 kilojoule per mole. Now, that means that that transmembrane domain, of course, what? very hydrophobic, and I just told you some of the amino acids you find there. So it makes sense. So the reason you generate these hydropathy hydrophobicity plots uh, is you want to kind of get an idea of how the protein sits in the membrane. And that, again, structure begets function in biochemistry. So it gives you an idea about how the structure could be related to um, uh, the functionality of the protein. I told you glycophorin A happens to be a protein that acts as a receptor for some pathogens. So if you want to study those pathogens and how they enter the cell, you need to, you know, need to know a fair amount about uh, glycophorin A. And this is one of the traditional, or I should say classical ways of studying them. Now, next thing I want to talk to you about this afternoon is how do you get these proteins into the membrane? And we've talked about this a great deal in authentic biochemistry. Um, and, you know, we talked about uh, vesicle transport and endosomal and exosomal transport. And I, I think more than that, more than we've done than a lot of other things. But for right now, I'm going to I'm going to stop here. This is about 20 minutes in. And then I'm going to back it up with my next lecture, which is going to be about the transport of proteins into the membranes. I'm going to break this up into little segments so that you can um, maybe do the notes better and get a more idea of where you can break off these mini lectures. So stopping here, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Uh, I'm going to get back to you real soon. I'm going to say, as I always do, bye for now. <laughs>